Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and music business. My guest this week is Kristen Agee of the 411 Music Group. First of all, Katy Perry, her producers, her record label and publisher, lost in federal court on an infringement case to Marcus Gray, also known as Flame. And the case was all about the fact that Marcus Gray's song called Joyful Noise, which was released in 2008, was used as the basis for Katy Perry's Dark Horse. And of course, Dark Horse was a huge hit. It had 2.6 billion YouTube views and 609 million Spotify streams. Now compare that to Joyful Noise, which only had 3.6 million YouTube views. Again, 3.6 million to 2.6 billion. Big difference there. And it's the same thing on Spotify. It only had 3.3 million streams. Another factor in this is Joyful Noise is Christian rap. There's no song to it. There's no melody. But the beat is important. And that's what Katy Perry and her people lost about. The beat is very, very similar. Not the melody, because there actually is a melody in Katy Perry's song and not in Marcus Gray's or Flame's song at all. So the total judgment was $2.8 million, of which Katy Perry has to pay $550,000. And everything else comes from Dr. Luke, who's one of the producers, from Max Martin, another one of the producers, and the record label and the publisher. But here's the rub. This is another one of those plagiarism lawsuits that doesn't go the way you expect it to because now there are things that are being used in court that never used to be allowed before. So it used to be the melody and the chordal pattern. And if that was too deceptively similar, then you'd lose. Biggest one I can think of right now is George Harrison's My Sweet Lord lost to the Chiffon's He's So Fine, which... When you put them up against one another, they sound pretty much the same. In this case, not so much. You listen to the beat on each one, and yeah, there is some similarity, but that's as far as it goes. All this stems from the 2015 Marvin Gaye Blurred Lines lawsuit. And this, of course, was Robin Thicke, his big hit, Blurred Lines. The Marvin Gaye estate sued him because the feel was similar. Not the same song, it's not even close, but the feel was very similar. Guess what? The Marvin Gaye State won, and that has changed copyright law since then. Or at least what the burden of proof is in order to prove copyright infringement. Now, let's look at it like this. There's only so many pleasing sequences of notes and ways to say I love you that work. We're pretty much limited in what that sequence of notes can be. So copyright is in trouble because even if by accident you copy a block, a core building block that's been copyrighted, then guess what? You're liable. You don't even have to have listened to the song. It just has to be the same. So you don't have to prove that somebody intentionally copied it. Not at all. In order to lose in court, all they have to prove is that the songs sound the same, and then they play it in front of a jury, and the jury decides. Unfortunately, the jury usually is nine people who aren't musicians at all, and they can't really discern more than the overall picture. Now, you might say, well, that's enough, but 
we're getting to the point where just about everything is a copyright violation. So something has to happen on this and it has to happen soon because otherwise we're stopping people from creating. And if you think that it's been difficult before creating a hit song, it's going to get even worse when these pleasing blocks of notes and chords that we in the West really like, when we're no longer allowed to create with them. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, here's something I firmly believe in. Every musician, every artist, every songwriter, every band should have a SoundCloud account. Now, SoundCloud has nothing to do with this podcast They don't sponsor it. It's just an opinion of mine. I think a SoundCloud account is really important for music creation. The reason why is it's YouTube for audio. It's a scratch pad for what you're doing. It's really easy to put something online and then take it down. Unlike if you do that with Spotify or Apple Music, it might take a couple of weeks to get online and then a couple of weeks to take it down if you so desire. In this case, with SoundCloud, you can put it right up. You can ask for opinions and comments. And then, if it doesn't work, you can pull it right down. Or you can replace it with a new version. It can be private if you need it to be. Or it can go out to the world if you need that to happen. It's also an excellent music host. And now, depending on the tier that you subscribe to, it will even distribute your songs to other streaming services. Now, there are a number of different plans here. There's a free plan, and of course, there's limitations to the free plan. Basically, you only get basic stats. You can't replace songs. If you go up to the pro account, which is only $6 a month, you get more stats. You get a quiet mode where you can disable comments if you want. You can replace tracks as you need. and When you replace a track, you still maintain the stream count and all the comments. Then there's a Pro Unlimited account that's $12 a month. And that allows you to schedule releases. You can access a catalog of DJ tools if that's what you're into. And then it also allows you to go to another mode, which is what they call Premiere Mode. And at that point, you can monetize your tracks on SoundCloud or have them distributed to other streaming services like Spotify, Tidal, Apple Music. There are some limitations, though, when it comes to Premiere, which is the desired tier that you'd like. You have to own all the rights to your songs. So in other words, this can't be copy material. You have to own everything. You have to have zero copyright strikes against you. You have to be a member of SoundCloud Pro or Pro Unlimited. And the last month, you have to have garnered 1,000 streams, which doesn't seem like it's too high of a bar to pass. I really suggest if you don't have a SoundCloud account, it's the way to go. One of the things that I notice, a lot of musicians, especially older musicians and artists and songwriters, they're not hip to this, and what they tend to do is still send out MP3s via email. And believe me, that does not work anymore. No one wants that. 
they want a link to a stream. First of all, no one wants their hard drive filled up with songs. Second of all, sometimes it clogs up the email server, causes a problem. Many times it won't even reach the person that you're sending it to because the email service provider will just block it. So you're defeating the purpose of reaching out if that happens. Well, that's why streams are important and SoundCloud is a perfect place. Again, SoundCloud isn't a sponsor of the Inner Circle podcast or anything like that. I just think it's a prudent move if you're a musician, an artist, a songwriter, a band. It's the way to go until something better comes along. My guest today is Kristen Agee, who's a classically trained violinist and started playing multiple instruments at age seven. She opened up a studio in Silver Lake, California, where she recorded punk bands, wrote music for various artists, all while touring as a bassist after learning the instrument from Rolling Stones bass player Daryl Jones. Her writing led to work with a number of publishers, and in 2012, she started 411 Music Group and launched a 200-song catalog just two years later. 411 is a one-stop shop music house that provides synchronization licensing, custom scores, and publishing administration. Kristen secures global partnerships for 411 and oversees the creative and strategic business. One of the most impressive things about her is that not only did she start as an artist, songwriter, composer, but she continues to make music and executive produces a number of scores and custom work that the company does for clients in the film, television, and visual media space. During the interview, we spoke about getting into music publishing, sonic branding, how up-to-date clients are with current music, how streaming has changed the publishing business, the latest music trends, and much more. I spoke with Kristen via Skype from her office in Burbank. Let's start at the beginning. So you were a violin prodigy, right? Oh my God, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. But um, I was a violinist. Um, I mean, even from the very beginning, I guess we always had a piano in the house um, and and we got a drum set when I was seven and I got a guitar when I was nine that my brother took from me and started playing. And it was when I was 11 and started playing violin that that was really what landed with me. So that became really my life and obsession um, for, you know, forever, really. I can't say that it's gone away. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was always classical violin, but I was this punk rocker at heart and, and was really into punk rock and classical music and going to operas and none of it really fully made sense. Um, but I was listening to all sorts of, of different genres of, and styles of music, um, growing up and, and still do today. So that was, yeah, that was like the, of the biggest part of my life. Okay. Then you started to play bass. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I played violin and I got a bit burnt out of music. Um, and when I graduated high school, I moved to Los Angeles from Oklahoma and um, and quit music for probably a year and then quickly got into back into it um, and started playing bass, started playing drums again, um, and ultimately started writing full time. Um, I went to sound engineering school and learn how to record sort of as a tool to writing. Um, and, and yeah, got into, into bass and was in bands playing bass and violin. I saw that you took lessons from Daryl Jones. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. He's, um, he is amazing. That was actually like a big turning point in my career, I think, or just in my dis- decision on, on what to do. Um, 
with with music. Um, I was basically I went to an Ampeg bass seminar um, sponsored by Ampeg with Daryl Jones, and I was probably the only girl there, and definitely the youngest person there. And I literally just watched the seminar and waited in line to talk to him um, after. And I was like, hey, Daryl, it's really great to meet you. Uh, do you teach bass lessons? And he was like, no. <laughs> but um, I was like, well, no pressure. Here's my card. And I gave him my card. And um, I was like, you know, call me if, if you decide to teach one day. And two weeks later, he called me and and said, I'll teach you. So he took me, I was his first student, and um, he took me, and we would have three-hour lessons. I was practicing probably four hours every day, and um, and I would, I would go to his house, and he'd always have some new gear there. It was like a new amp, a new bass, um, like a new upright bass. He was always trying something different or like compressors and um, like pedals and, and, um, he'd come home with like, um, music from the Emmys and, and be like, sight read this. And, and so he had me doing all sorts of, you know, scales, arpeggios, like Carol Kay bass books and playing Led Zeppelin songs and Marvin Gaye songs and writing out 12 bar blueses and everything. Um, and, and it was really like a year and a half into my lessons with him that, I sort of realized and discovered that the longevity of music was in songwriting and copyrights and ownership of assets. And I don't think I necessarily knew or understood that that meant publishing. Um, but that was really when I shifted gears and started writing full time. And then when I did, it was specifically for synchronization. So that's, that was really what, what launched me into having a writing career. How old were you? I was, I think I was like 24, 23 or 24 when I met him. And I thought I was going to be the next bassist for the Smashing Pumpkins. And um, in fact, they were auditioning bass players back then. And so I was like, this is, this is my goal. And, um, and then I, I quickly learned that I didn't want to tour full time. And, um, and I liked collaborating and being in the studio um, so, so yeah, I just totally shifted gears and started writing. So I was probably like 24, 25 when I did that. And then I started Foreign on Music Group like the following year, um, just from basically needing to, to, to grow into something else. The reason why I asked your age at that point in your life was because it seems like people don't get their arms around publishing and licensing until later on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that it was something that it took time for me to, to figure out, you know, I mean, I, I, I feel like I, I mean, at this point I have a, a solid grasp on it, but um, you know, when I, when I started foreign on music group, I don't even think I necessarily really knew all the ins and outs of, of what it takes to be a publisher um, because people, I think people think that music is is one thing and it's really a much more complex business than anyone ever like anyone knows sitting on the outside. So I think when I when I decided to write full time, 
I actually took a UCLA extension class with Bobby Borg. And I remember going in, I read his musician's handbook and I'd read um, all of the, the like books on publishing and labels and deals, like all you need to know about the music business, the Donald S. Passman book. And I went into Bobby's class and I was like, hey, it's great to meet you. Thanks, you know, for the, the lesson. I'm starting a publishing company. Uh, so I really need to know everything there is to know about publishing. And he was just like, well, <laughs> calm down. Um, let's get through this course first. And then, you know, why don't you see what happens? It's like, okay, fine. But this is what I'm doing. So I just really need to know everything there is to know about this. And so I went through that course and I was trying to get it and, um, and understand, you know, all the different logistics of publishing administration, mechanicals, labels, and master use versus sync and, and, um, you know, the different types of, of deals that exist worldwide and different territories and licensing restrictions and just terms of, of use like media and, you know, MFN and all of these different musical terms and publishing terms, licensing terms that you don't necessarily know as a writer. Um, and so off the back of that, I started a company and, uh, have just honestly been, learning as I go and growing, um, just sort of naturally with, with what has, how we've been expanding as a, as a company. Yeah. I want to get into that in a second, but it's kind of interesting that you started as a writer and most musicians, composers would kind of stop there and say, I just want to get as many cues under my belt as possible and, and get them out there. And I don't want to think about the rest, but yeah. you, you took that extra step. That's kind of unusual. What brought that on? I mean, you're right. And I, I think I actually encourage people all the time to continue writing because if you're a writer and that's what you're good at and that's what you want to be doing, um, it takes a ship to steer what we do now as a business. And I think that as a, as, as a writer or creator or business owner, whatever your involvement is in music, um, or any business, I think it's it's important to fill in the gaps, like find people who are good at other things and work with them. So even if you're a singer songwriter, but you're not good at producing or recording, pair with a producer. And if that means like sharing um, like a writer's percentage with them, do it because then you're going to be able to further your career in songwriting and producing and whatever you're doing. So I mean, for business, I guess for me, I always thought I would run my own thing. I always thought I would be independent and, and was always sort of entrepreneurial minded as a child even. Um, and it's just always been, been there. And I've worked for other people. I like working for other people, but I just always thought I would run my own something. And, and to be honest though, once I started a business and once we started growing, I stopped writing as much. And now I can really just oversee the creative and executive produce and put people together. But actually being physically in the studio now is, is more difficult because I just don't have time to anymore. Yeah. It's a limiting factor, isn't it? Business. Yeah. It's, it's challenging. Um, but, and it's something that I'm looking at and exploring at the moment because I'm, I'm missing it and I'm feeling like those creative resources are being left a bit untapped. Um, even though I mean, I, I am in charge of all of our custom music. Um, so I still 
am co-writing and executive producing and giving mixed notes and writing notes and putting collaborations together. But I'm just feeling like it's not enough for me. It's, it's great, but I want to be doing more on that side. I want to be helping further other people's careers and, and creative levels um, even more so than what I'm doing now. You know, you just mentioned something. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but you just mentioned something that struck a note with me. You mentioned giving mixed notes. Mm -hmm. And I assume that's because you have a feel for what your clients are looking for in terms of sound, balance, whatever it might be. Am I right with that? Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm an engineer and writer, and so I think, you know, our company is structured in a different way than other companies because it was started by a creative. So a lot of companies are started by finance people or boards or investors. And I started this as a writer and thought, oh, I can aggregate music and I can help other artists and composers get gigs and license their music and try to make money on their music. So it just was started from a sort of a different space. So maybe it is a bit unusual to have your CEO giving all the mixed notes and doing custom music and, you know, helping people write. Um, but that was always the setup that we, we started with. And so, yeah, when, when I, you know, it used to be like when I have a production manager now and an asset manager um, and they give notes. But from the beginning, I always give notes on every piece of music that came into the catalog. Um, and then, and now I still do all of the notes and executive produce all of the music that we do that's custom. So if we score a TV show, I go in, I meet with the producers and creatives of the show. I come up with the, the concept um, of the sound of the show and, and then I brief it out to all of my teams of writers. So I'll tell them, I've, I've basically taught all of our writers how to write cues specifically for these shows that we're working on. Um, they need to arc in this way. There need to be sting outs. There need to be edit points. And this is why there need to be edit points. And like, I'll, I'll give them notes like this guitar line is a bit distracting, you know, like either take it out or hand your drums this way or, or compress this, you know, whatever it is, this vocal or um, EQ, this, this like kick is interfering with the bass. So EQ your kick. And I just get pretty detailed when it comes to those mixed notes, but you know, the writing teams I'm working with now are just ace and, and they've always been amazing writers, but um, now we have an amazing workflow that I really don't, I, I barely give notes anymore because they just get it. Yeah. One of the things I've always found with composers for sync, they do it so much that they get really good as producers and mixers and their stuff is way better than even, uh, I don't want to say the best of the best or cream of the crop, but they're as good as anybody when it comes down yeah, to Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our guys are for sure. And I, I think um, I think it's because they've had to do everything on their own. And as a writer, even, you know, when I was writing full time, I was writing, I was mixing, I was mastering, I was recording all the vocals, I was helping write the vocals and harmony parts and and playing all the instruments so you really have to when you're where you're a composer and you're dealing with limited budgets 
you have to get creative with what you're doing. And so I had to learn how to do everything. I soldered my own patch bays and cables. I, I literally hand built my first studio in Silver Lake and was, was making base traps and like, <laughs> like laying floors and, you know, just really hands on with every single aspect of building a studio, running a studio, recording bands, writing the music, mixing the music. And so I think having that full picture as a producer, writer, and now executive producer um, and, and creator, like helps you to hone in the, all of those skills for, for everything that you're doing. And you're right, you, you get better at it as you go. And, and writing and mixing is like a muscle. And the more you exercise it, the better you get at it. You mentioned having a studio or studios. Was that before or after you were taking lessons with Daryl? Um, that was sort of during. I When I first moved to L.A., man, those, those first two years, I was 18 years old, and those first two years were probably the most difficult years of my life. Um, but I made it through. I pushed pushed through. Um, and And I remember I was... I was always playing violin and acoustic instruments. And so I, I was kind of anti anything unnatural, which meant anything electronic, anything amplified. It took me a long time to even just get a pickup to put on my acoustic violin um, to plug into an amp to play live. But I, at a certain point, I realized and thought, you know, I need to learn this if I'm going to go any further with songwriting. Um, and so I, that's when I went to sound engineering school, I found a studio over here in, in, uh, the Valley where I, I, it was like a co-op where I rented space from these guys in this like a, apartment, um, on Ventura Boulevard, <laughs> like, oh my God, it was such a, a nightmare on so many levels, but it was my first studio that I was trying to figure out. And, um, and so I did that, and then I I went to um, I think I, I was at Pasadena City College. I dropped out of University of California at Santa Barbara because I was just totally unhappy there and not doing music. Um, and so I went to Pasadena City College. I did songwriting classes, bass classes, choir, um, theory, um, like all sorts of just all music classes. And, uh, and that's when I was renting the studio. Um, and then, yeah, at some point along the line, I, I created this, I went to sound engineering school and then I went to, um, moved to Silver Lake and that's when I started building out the studio there. So I think I was in the process of building it into a real studio when I was taking lessons with, with Daryl or right after. The reason why I ask is, you just said before that you decided that, well, being a player is one thing, but maybe in the long term, it's better to be a writer. And then the studio is an extension of that to a degree. If you're working on your projects, if you're working on other people's projects, it can kind of get away from you. And I suspect that might have happened at some point with you. Exactly. And, and you know, when I first started working in a studio space on whatever capacity it was, whether it was like, you know, in on Ventura Boulevard or in Silver Lake, I was, um, I was just exploring what it meant to be engineering and being, and be in a studio. So yeah, it started as I'm setting up my drum kit and my 
putting, you know, my base and I'm trying to figure out how to record in Pro Tools and Logic. And, um, and then it progressed into like, okay, I get this now. I'm going to record bands. And I ended up recording like 80s punk bands in my first studio in Silver Lake. I was interning at Epitaph um, Records, also in Silver Lake. And, um, and, and then, yeah, I was, I was playing live. Um, and then I met Daryl and that's when I started transitioning into writing. And so it was at the same time I had this space in Silver Lake that was not really a built out studio. It was just a room and it was kind of like a rehearsal room. So recording punk bands in there was fine, but to then actually take it to another level and, and have a legitimate control room, live room, um, actual setup was another step. So it was during that process that I had met Daryl and, um, and and decided to start writing that I started building out this studio space in Silver Lake and then be, it became a legitimate studio and then that from there it was really you know okay well recording punk bands in here maybe doesn't make sense anymore so so I'm going to start setting up co-writes so instead of that like bringing in bands I was bringing in singers and other producers and we were recording for real in a real studio setup and um you know, the stuff we were writing and mixing was just at, at a different level from the, the years prior to that. Let's talk about 411 Music Group for a second. I noticed that you offer a lot of services, but what would you consider the primary service? Um, yeah, that's a good question. We have thought a lot about this actually over the years, and our best, I guess, aspect of what we do and quality is being a creative sync house. So because we started with creative and we end with creative, that has always been um, what differentiates, differentiates us from other businesses. So we are very proactive and hands-on with our writers, our artists, um, our releases, our clients, and we're not just waiting for the phone to ring. And we didn't start as an administrator. We started with the creative side. So that has always been the focus for us. And the administration and publishing and all of that, you know, followed, basically. So I would say that that's what we're best at and that's what we focus on. And, and doing custom music, that part of the business has really built in a big way over the last four years. And um, so putting people together and collaborating is always um, like a big big aspect of what we do let's talk about that for a second how hip are your clients how up to date are they on the latest trends and do you have to follow that as a result yeah that's, a, that's an interesting question um i think uh you know everybody like that that is all we do basically you know anyone who's in music is always inundated with music in, in a good way and in a bad way. Um, so we are always following trends and what's working here and not just here, our business has become and is a global business. And so it's not just us focused. Um, we also have a UK office. We're also direct in, in Canada, in the Netherlands, in Switzerland and and we have Latin artists we work with, like one of our bigger artists and writers is F Tampa. He's from Brazil. Um, and, and so it's not just about focusing on one territory. It's about looking at the world and what content is working 
in the US, what content is working in Germany, in Australia, in the UK, in Singapore, in you know, Asian Asian territories, K-pop is interesting, J-pop, like there's so many different trends happening globally. And it really is different depending on on where you sit on the, the consumer level. Are you creating video content? Are you a producer? Um, are you consuming content as a listener? So, so yeah, I would say I discover music from our clients all the time. I think they discover music from us as well. It's sort of a give and take. And, and there is a bit of like a follow. I think that a lot of um, trailer music supervisors start to set, try to set new trends. Um, and then the UK sets a trend that the US follows a couple years later, typically, um, especially in electronic music. Um, and that trickles into uh, the pop world. Um, but the Latin market recently has really exploded and, and had an influence on major pop hits now. So yeah, I think our clients really get music and, and, and it's not even just about getting music. It's about understanding why it works for their context, why it works in their scene for this show in this time period. And it's just about sort of being like on their side, being an encyclopedia of, of music, like you no know, understanding music in a totally different way. Okay. All that being said, Spotify is changing the way artists are creating. Yes. Song forms are way different. Everything is shorter. How does that affect what you do? Um, yeah, that, that's a, a good question too. I mean, Spotify has changed our business, um, in a big way. Um, on the business side of that, it's, you know, trying to replace the loss of record sales. Um, there still is demand for physical a bit, um, but it's just completely changed. I think streaming services are getting there when it comes to monetizing the publishing side. Um, and the master side is, do, is doing pretty well um, on, on those streaming services. But, but yeah, I think that it's, it's really come down to how you, you keep people's attention. And that is really the hardest thing. And maybe the answer is that attention spans just change. Like they're, they're different now and it, they are shorter and there is a, a challenge keeping people um, in tune with what you're doing. So holding an audience is harder. Um, keeping your fan base is harder. So I think, I think really what I've been seeing on Spotify is, is these like short little like videos that are coming out that play now simultaneously with a song and having a visual representation of a song um, and and, and there's this weird trend of like this minimalist music happening, I think, um, in the pop world. Yeah. It's really gotten, it's just changed. Like the dynamic of, of what works and music and what, what hits with fans has changed. And the thing that I think Spotify did in digital streaming platforms is they made music accessible to everyone. It's not just about the majors putting out these big releases and that's who you know and that's who you listen to and that's all you have access to. You can find any type of music in any obscure genre around the world on 
Spotify or YouTube or Apple Music or, you know, Facebook. And, and you're able to listen to whatever you want. It's just a matter of cutting through all that noise and how you do that. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. And, and for us, it's about building that team so that, so that you can try to cut through the noise a bit at, and at least be able to monetize your music while you're trying to do that. Now, all that said, the tastes change a lot and they change per territory as well. Yeah. I'm surprised to hear you say that the UK sort of leads everything and then we follow. What do you see as a current trend that maybe I'm not seeing here? Yeah, I mean, maybe the UK isn't necessarily always leading every trend. I mean, like we get tons of requests, like I said, for K-pop and J-pop and, um, you know, different. What I find to be interesting about, you know, different territories is using like, the uniqueness of where you live and the influences of that culture and that demographic of, and, and those listeners to create your own sound and use like, you know, if you are from Brazil, what is influencing that Brazilian market? Take that and put that into your music. It doesn't have to be bossa nova, but just take some of those interesting Brazilian rhythms and like carnival vibes and put that in a pop song. You know, it's like, don't shut out your culture of like this Latin culture. I mean, that's why I think this Latin music thing is really hit. It's like you have all these mainstream artists who are Latin and proud of it and pushing that kind of music out. So I think it's really like all of these, these cultures and territories are influencing each other. Um, but the UK, like, I think it's interesting. They've sort of, at least on the, the content side have been known, um, for having better, better score catalogs, like better, um, production music catalogs. Uh, the electronic music scene is much more prevalent than it is in the U S. Um, but then things like electric Daisy carnival and, Tomorrowland, Rock and Rio, like there are these big festivals that have come over and people are more interested in now um, because of these different territories um, having these big influences there. But but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm seeing this. I mean, grime has always been a thing in the UK. Um, there are not always. It has been for a while now, but um, that's a big ask. Um, I think that the pop world there has just been shifting a bit and you know the pop world seems to be like very young at the moment like Billie Eilish um I mean Ed Sheeran has been around for a long time Shawn Mendes like all of these artists like there there's a very young and authentic vibe going on with most of them it's like this is me and this is like I'm accessible to you and I think that is what fans like is being able to feel like they know them. And, and that's the experience that I think some of these, these really young artists are bringing um, that's changing the way that people are listening to music. It's always been that way though. When there's a, a new trend or a bunch of new artists, they're mostly young and there's always that vibe until they reach a certain level of success. And then that kind of flips yeah, totally. I mean, we're seeing that with Ed Sheeran now to some degree, and we've seen it with Taylor Swift, and, you know, you can go on and on. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. It's, and it's, I think it's always been like that, even with, 
if you go back to like Madonna and Michael Jackson and pop stars of their time um, and even rock bands, like everyone's always progressing in a different way. Um, and you do reach a turning point where you have to become an adult and that's always awkward. Yeah. <laughs> like, how do we do this? And what's my new sound? And sometimes that works. And, and a lot of times people reject it at first, but then they, they accept it for what it is. And then they put out something else and then they continue to follow them. Um, and you know, I think people are, are pretty loyal when it comes to these artists and their, their fan bases, like they, they'll follow them and unless they do ha have a complete mis misstep and then that's a different story, I guess. I saw under the services that 411 Music Group provides sonic branding. What is that yes. exactly? Um, so, I mean, we, we are a publisher and administrator and all that, but our focus is all on synchronization. So um, we have sort of a production music catalog, score catalog, sound design, trailer music. We also represent and publish artists and bigger catalogs for synchronization. Um, and one of the things we do is, like I said, score TV shows, promos, ads, video games. Um, sonic branding is one aspect of that. So it's, it's basically like creating a sound for a brand. So we, um, like if, let's say, NBC rebrands and they need a new little like logo sound, like a three second sting almost of this is our sound, um, then we would create the sound of that company. Um, and, and it varies like depending on, on what, what the need is, but it, that's, that's typically what it is, is working with brands to create a sound for them. Their sonic logo, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. If, if you're going to see a logo card come up on screen, um, we write stuff like that and jingles, you know, like even, even the, like the McDonald's jingle and like all of those classic jingles that we all know, Mentos, like, you know, there are so many that, that come to mind with, with, um, big brands and those are their jingles and that sort of becomes their, their sort of sonic brand in a way as well. Hot pockets. Yeah. Exactly. I bring that up because a friend of mine wrote that and never got a dime for it. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay, that's <laughs> yeah. not good. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. Right, right. Or he made a very small amount of money for it, I think. Anyway, what what are the challenges that you're facing right now? Hmm. I guess I could answer that on a lot of levels. Um, I think the challenge for me is finding the balance. Um, well, work-life balance is a constant challenge. Um, but finding the balance between business and creative is a challenge, um, and continuing to grow. How do we stay competitive? You know, what do we need to change to progress? And when we started, it was just me and, and, you know, as I started to hire people and we started to grow, we'd sort of hit these ceilings and I'm like, we'd have these growing pains and I'm like, how do we push through to the next ceiling? And so we've been continuing to do that. And I think the more you, you get on the map and get on people's radar, the more people put you under a microscope and really look at what you're doing and observe you and are like, Oh, now you're in our space and now you're a threat. And it's sort of managing those, 
I guess like the expectations internally and externally um, and and continuing to push forward and grow and stay new and fresh and relevant. And I think one of my biggest things is, um, which is a challenge, but also one of our biggest strengths is staying independent. Like we are an indie all the way through and um, we've never signed with a major. We work with majors um, on lots of levels, but for our partnerships, we are fully independent and and we're a female-owned and operated company, so we're a minority company. And while that seems like that it does have loads of advantages, it also has disadvantages. I feel like I've had to really push through the market in a different way, um, just being in, in my situation and position. And I think it's getting easier and easier, but it's still been a challenge. And, um, and so I take that and I'm like, we're stronger because of it. Sure. And I feel fortunate to be where we are now because of what we've all had to go through to, to be here. So, so yeah, I think competing with majors is difficult, but it's also, um, it allows us the flexibility that we need to adapt and grow. Like we're not a big tank that needs to be turned. We are nimble and can move and change directions if we need to, and we can try new things. And if this doesn't work, we can try something else and and find the path that works for us and for our artists and for our writers and our clients. Um, and that's what we, we focus on. That leads me into my last question, which is kind of off the mark a little bit, but not that much. Considering how you started and considering what you're doing now and, and how you're leading a company and all those things that you just said with all those challenges, What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or someone imparted to you? That's a good question. I think um, there are a few things. I remember um, the first panel I ever did, and I was terrified to do this panel. I was probably 25 or 26, um, and I was on a panel with people who'd been in the business for like decades. And I was by far the youngest and really out of my league and and totally terrified of like, oh, my God, what am I going to say? And I remember um, somebody asked, what's the best advice you can give to an, an artist or a writer? And I said to learn how to record. And the I think it was the composer of Sons of Anarchy was on this panel with me. And after the panel, we all sort of got together. And he goes, who gave the advice about who should to learn how to learn how to record. And I was like, Oh God, that was me. And he goes, that was the best advice on the whole panel. And I was like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> like, like, thank God. And, and so, um, I think learning how to record is and, and manage your own business and, and copyrights while you need to. Um, and, and being able to be self-sufficient really on that production side will really go a long way. And like I said, filling in the gaps if you can't and you that's not a skill of yours, find someone who can do that um, would be something I always continue to tell people. Um, but but also like, like fill out your team and, um, and don't be afraid to put what you're doing out there. Like don't be afraid to try working with companies like ours or try pushing your music, just be informed about it. Like know who you're pitching, 
know who you're talking to and don't push your EDM music to someone who's only working on a period piece that works with like 1930s music. Um, so, so like being informed and making informed decisions. Um, and, and then as far as like running a business, I think I learned the most from, um, from a guy who's recently hired me, you know, a few years ago to be their head of music. He really taught me how to manage people, I think. And, um, that's always been a big struggle for me in, in my own personal development. And, and I think what I've learned along the years out of, out of all of these different pieces of advice is, is being able to help people to empower them to do what they do best and find their skill set and hone it in and fill in the gaps where you need to. And you can't know everything and you can't be perfect at everything you do. So, so just finding all of those missing pieces um, and, and like I said, honing in the craft so that, so that what you do can be expanded into the next space. You can find out more about Kristen at 411musicgroup.com. That's 411musicgroup, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or Go to bobbyownercircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>